1: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today my guest is Noah Shindler. Noah is the author of Displacement and Erasure in Palestine The Politics of Oak, published by Edinburgh University Press in 2023. The book examines how Palestinians defy displacement and erasure from the history books and state archives. The author explores the ways in which Palestinians negotiate physical and symbolic erasure by producing their own archives and historical narratives that often in the West are not common or popular at all. With a focus on the city of Jaffa and its displaced Palestinian population, Noah Scheinlinger argues that the Israeli state buried histories of mass expulsions and spatial appropriations. So, based on a wide variety of sources, this book brings together archival, literary, ethnographic and oral research to engage with ideas of settler colonialism and the production of history, violence and memory, refugeehood, and diaspora. But the author also leaves us with a, a hopeful ending for a different future, one that will be marked by return and reparation. But before we delve into all of this, first things first, Noah, welcome. Thank you. Can you tell us something about uh, yourself and the origins of this book? Sure,
2: so I grew up in Tel Aviv, right? Um, So these landscapes that I'm talking about are very familiar to me. Um, And actually, as a child, um, I grew up right by the remains of the village of Salome, um, which was the largest village in the region of Jaffa. It was about 5,000 people, I believe, in 1946. And so as a child, I remember seeing their remains and asking my mom, you know about them and she said oh never go there and I, and I asked why and she said well because Arabs used to live here um, you know so it was very clear to me since the beginning of like grad school that I'm going to write something about Jaffa <laughs> right um, Of course the whole project went through all kinds of transformations because um, because of the people I encountered because of circumstances because I actually started it in 2011 when 2011 was also when um, if you recall the big demonstrations in Tel Aviv started right like um, like the housing protests and I participated in this and so my project completely shifted Um, but um, this is how I also got to know a lot of people in Jaffa. Right. And this is how this project shifted from being um, more rooted in kind of archival research to being rooted in this assemblage of sources, including, of course, um, ethnography, including speaking with a lot of live people, including um, extended stays in sites
1: like Balata refugee camp. I was wondering if you can provide the listeners with a short historical context into which your narrative is part of. And I want to also say and stress the fact that, to be honest, there's not much written about Jaffa. I mean, particularly compared to uh, Jerusalem, or if you want to look at the nearby Tel Aviv, where obviously there's plenty of work done, but Jaffa remains largely unexplored from you know, o- almost all disciplines, whether it's anthropology, sociology, history, and politics?
2: I mean, most recently, there there have been some interesting interventions, right? Um, in anthropology, Daniel Monteresco, who's done amazing work um, in Jaffa and also has a unique insight as somebody who grew up in Jaffa and went to a non-Jewish school, right, and speaks Arabic and all of that. So that's, you know, that's, one thing. Um, there has been like, I actually collected a lot of things that have been written about Jaffa before I even started um, writing my dissertation. And there's a lot of written in Hebrew, right? And and it's like all very uncritical stuff, right? That, that's fine. Um, I, I was going to write about that. And I decided that it's I, I have more interesting things to do. Now, the other thing that to remember, is of course, and I always have to remind to my my students, is that unlike Israel that has you know state archives, Palestinians don't have state archives, right? And so in terms of historical research, we're kind of stuck in terms of the kind of materials that we have access to. And to a certain degree, also depending on what we can find in, in the Israeli archives. Right or become super super creative, right? Um, whereas when you when you write about Tel Aviv, you have the Tel Aviv Municipal Archives, which I visited, um, and and you have quite a bit, right? They Tel Aviv from the very beginning had this sense of itself, right, as this. Um, historically significant site, the first Hebrew city, so Tel Aviv always documented itself, right? So you can really find a lot about Tel Aviv. Jerusalem had Jerusalem is a different story because Jerusalem has this, you know, this this long presence of. Um, Christian missions, right? It has it has long had interests by historical societies, archaeological societies, you know, like a Holy Land, like Palestine, you know, Holy Land type of groups that were um, interested in Jerusalem. And Jaffa didn't have that kind of interest, right? Also, um, also Jaffa. Also Jaffa over the centuries um had periods periods where it really really shrunk right and um really didn't have a lot of you know in terms of population or a lot of um or much significance and then it sort of grew again right in the 19th century Um, whereas i think jerusalem has kind of always had right you can really trace its significance Right, like strategic, right. and cultural, you know. Um, so that kind of accounts for 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 some of it, right? It's kind of important to remember. Um, and of course, in, I mean, in Java, you have the loss of the majority of its population. I mean, you know, um, in a way that didn't quite happen that way in Jerusalem. Right? Like in Jaffa, most of the Palestinian population were expelled. Whereas in Jerusalem, what you have in 1948 is that it was divided so that part of the city actually remained Palestinian. So some people actually ended up staying. That also, of course, accounts for the discrepancies right, in the kind of information that is produced on those cities
1: one day someone will engage in some sort of a comparative work or try to bring the two uh, together. But I'm gonna leave this to a younger generation of scholars. I want to ask about the goals of your book. If you can give us a sense of uh, what you wanted to achieve when you start writing this narrative.
2: At first, I really wanted to talk about erasure, right? The way that Jaffa, Jaffa's Arabness, Right, was almost completely erased, and what was left of it was retooled in order to fit better into um, being marketable, right, as this kind of oriental, quaint quarter of Tel Aviv. Right. But it's 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 more significant history. Right. As as an Arab Palestinian city was erased. And I was really interested in that. Right. The walking through the city, you can really see right remains. Right. So you can see, for example, um, on on buildings that used to be owned by Palestinians. Right. So you can see um, different um, signs right, Um, dedications, right, on buildings. Um, The the history is is there. You just have to kind of look for it. And I became absolutely obsessed with it, right, just walking with my feet. It's not such a big city, so you can really walk it. Um, Walking and um, examining um, buildings really, really closely. And then later on, speaking to people, right, because then people would ask me, what are you doing, right? Um, you know, and, and so it started as a excavation project, kind of, right. Um, but it became something else because if you're only treating a city, a place, um, as, as an archeological dig, um, which is, I mean, that, that, that's, uh, also you know criticism of archaeology as a discipline right you're ignoring you're erasing the presence of living people right and the people that have used and lived in these spaces right so it kind of evolved from just excavation to understanding how people um, articulate their belonging to space even if they're not physically in this space Right, which led me to other places like Balata. Right, and then of course, as somebody who is, um, has been an activist, I was interested in the future. Right, so what can we do? So, what can happen? So, what are the options? So, how can we see beyond the horizon of what is right?
1: And I want to bring our conversation to the question of Jaffa. Now, you already mentioned. A few things there, but I'm very curious about why Jaffa for your case study. And if you can, you know, share with us why you chose this particular place, which I guess is also connected to the fact, as you said at the very beginning, you grew up in Tel Aviv. So for you, Jaffa is uh, familiar. It's just, you know, around the corner. And I was also interested in, in the narration, you know, of a brief history of Jaffa that you recount in chapter one, just to provide some historical context.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, um, for me, it was also important for the uninitiated, so those who have not read histories of Jaffa, to kind of provide some kind of background that presents Jaffa, first of all, not as this you know, decrepit, oriental, quaint quarter of Tel Aviv. Um, not as um, also not as a site of poverty or crime, which is sort of another image that the city has, right? Um, But instead, really, as, as a center of modernity, first of all, right? So Tel Aviv is not the quintessential modern city. Actually, you know, obviously, Jaffa was as well, um you know java is a hub of cultural production um of economic activity right um because most people unless they read these histories actually are not quite aware of it and then of course once you build it up in in chapter one then you can talk about the new normal in chapter two or the destruction of all this right you cannot start with two without one, I had these conversations with my supervisor a lot. I was like, "Oh, but why do I need to like, actually go through all of the things that we know?" It was like, and he said, "You and I know. <laughs> Don't assume other people know, right And, and it makes the the, the the next chapter much more powerful this
1: way. right You open chapter two with uh personal stories intersecting the discovery of a mass grave in Jaffa. And I must say that actually I was there. I was in Jerusalem when that happened. So I remember when I was reading the book, I like, Oh, actually, I actually remember that. Can you tell us how was the Nakba forgotten and the state created then what you just mentioned, the new normal?
2: Yeah, it's funny because we were there then at the same time. Um, so um, one of the things that that the, the starting this chapter in this way creates one of the effects that it creates it is about kind of dredging the past, right? Uncovering, right? So of course this this chapter is all about concealing right? It's the way that the state concealed and was quite successful in doing this. Jaffa is what was the very recent past. So it was easy for the state to do it because they managed to expel most of the Palestinian population, right? Once they walked into the city, what they had is a city that was mostly depopulated, so mostly empty, with the exception of a few thousand people that then, of course, the military um, concentrated into one um, one area in Ajami. And for a year, they also held them behind um, barbed, wi- barbed wires, right? And so calling that part, the barbed wire part, calling it Arab Jaffa, and then most of the city becomes Jewish Jaffa. So for the Israelis, it was actually very easy to remake Jaffa and remake Jaffa very quickly, which contemporaneous accounts really demonstrate, right? Being able to reallocate, right? So reallocate um, residential buildings, right? Give them away to Jewish migrants or give them away to families of soldiers, reallocate um, public spaces, reallocate stores, right? And absolutely remake the city in the image, right? Of the state and Judaize the city. And they did it very, very quickly because they were able to cordon off the remaining Palestinian population
1: a large group of uh, Western mainstream media as a particular way of discussing Palestine and Palestinians. And we can certainly see that nowadays with the current events. And that often sounds patronizing, dismissive, and there are indeed exceptions, and I'm thinking about uh, Medea Sun or uh, SNPC uh, or Tadros, which used to work at Sky News and then left and she left that much because of the the war on Gaza uh, in 2014, if I remember well. Can you tell us more about the personal narratives of stories of exile, which normally cannot be heard from the media?
2: It's, I mean, it's true that in Western media, for years, right, you didn't, you didn't, I mean, for a long time, you didn't even really hear the word Palestinian, right? It was just generic Arabs, maybe, Um, but Palestinians had their other ways, right, of telling their stories and preserving memories. First of all, literature, right? Literature in Arabic, of course, which then, I mean, of course, doesn't really reach larger audience in the West, but Palestinians read it, Right? Um, and and you have those that get translated. Um, a kind of for example, um, that was translated. Uh, Hisham Sharabi, of course, those who ended up really in the West, you know, um, people like, um, Ibrahim Abu right? People like, um, Edward Said, right, who were able to, to. Kind of narrate Palestine in public to Western audiences, right, and make people make a lot of people uncomfortable in an era where you really couldn't talk about um, Palestine. right? And the Palestinians also have other ways, um, for instance, within the community, within the family. Right, young Palestinians that I spoke with in refugee camps, they know very, very well where their grandparents come from, to the point of being able to, to, um, you know, describe, right, this, repeat the description, the very detailed, granular description of their grandfather's neighborhood or village, right, and they also know where it is on the map and they know what is there now. Right. So I had these conversations with, you know, boys who are younger than me, way younger than me, who would be who were able to tell me that their grandparents came from, you know, Jemisin, and they were able to tell me which Jewish neighborhood are there now and what it looks like and and all of that. Right. Um, So Palestinians don't depend on um well permission to narrate right palestinians don't depend on western media right palestinians have always found a way to remember their own history to write their own history right even if in the west they have been ignored right and now you have of course in the more recent years you have a bit more visibility for palestinians in the west as well um through literature, through people like, yes, you mentioned Mehdi Hassan, I was thinking more about Ali Velshi and Ayman Mohyadin, um, all three of them in MSNBC. I I believe Ayman Ayman, is half Palestinian, um, like Egyptian Palestinians. So, um, you know, these um, hosts uh, kind of represent a new generation that is not afraid to um to, to, to say the P word. And by the way, with them also other non-Palestinian um journalists and hosts that every once in a while I also see that say, hey, you know, this this is apartheid or, you know, what, what Israel is doing is wrong. Like, sometimes I see that. Right. And you know, I mean we owe a lot to the first generation of especially Palestinian American intellectuals that paved the way and got into a lot of trouble, right? And were demonized for that.
1: I wanna talk about uh, something that struck me in your book because I think it's uh, important, not just in the narrative, but I think it's important also given the current context. Um, You talk about this idea of uh, Palestinian revolutionary consciousness. And again, we can't really go into all the current debates about this because obviously there's a diversity of views and opinions after the the, the events of of the past uh, 10 days. But I'm curious if you can focus on this concept as you discuss it in the book.
2: Yes, I'm not talking about um, current events. When we talk about Palestinian revolutionary consciousness, we're talking about the late 60s and early 70s. It's a completely different time. And obviously, most people don't remember. But in the 1950s, you know, Palestinians were the poor Arab refugees who are in refugee camps that were at the time mostly tents, right, and were surviving... um, on charity, I mean, basically, right? On charity, right? Um, um, you know, like Anwar and and other aid workers and so on. And then later in the sixties, you have the Arab League, that started the fake PLO, right? That the early incarnation of the PLO. It was all about you sit tight, we're going to liberate Palestine for you, which was always um, kind of laughable. So. Revolutionary consciousness is all about eschewing all that, right? Eschewing the poor Arab refugee depending on aid, but also um, kind of rejecting um, the very paternalistic um, and losing approach from Arab states. We don't forget, the Arab states also lost 67, right? Revolutionary consciousness is about we are going to take our own fate into our hands, and we are have to fight in order to liberate, in order to liberate our country, in order to, you know, return to our country. And there, there's a lot of talk about the new Palestinian, right? Um, the fact that we have to shed all of those things that made us lose our homeland, right? That also all of those things that made you know, um, made us sort of be dependent on those corrupt Arab regimes. Right. Um, And it was all about um, we are not going to engage in like the old type of Arab politics or the kind of international politics. Right Instead, you know, just like Elsan Kanafani was writing about, right, we, we are going to join the guerrillas, become become new people. It's about it, it's it's not just about collective liberation, it's also the liberation of the self. It's also kind of about rebirth of the self. Like it has a very profound psychological um, mental, emotional um, layers, it's not, you know what I mean, which is it's very hard to convey today um, to, for example, younger students who sort of say, say, wait, so you support Hamas, you know what I mean, because they think that when I talk about sort of armed struggle for liberation, and this is what I'm talking about, but that's not what I'm talking about. I have this feeling that Hassan Kanafani would not have been very happy with Hamas. Um, I don't know, because he was obviously assassinated, but um, it's a completely different process of the liberation of the self in order to achieve the liberation of the collective.
1: Which in a sense, again, when I was reading the book, I I was trying to draw this parallel with uh, kind of early Zionism. I mean, one form of Zionism that was really preaching the idea of a new Jew, the Alutzin, the pioneer. So th- I feel like there was something interesting there, like the idea of a uh, Geulet redemption. So uh, again, there are different contexts, but th- there's also some similarities. At the same time, from an historical perspective, you're looking at an era where you have plenty of movements uh, kind of developing this revolutionary consciousness in the global south. But even in Europe, where I grew up uh, in the north of Italy, we had all of these, uh, you know, political, some of them turned into terrorist organizations later, uh, mostly connected to, you know, communist organization. And very much they preached on this idea of uh, the new You know, individual. So there was uh, a general attempt, I I guess, to, you know, get out of a post World War II era and somehow, you know, 20 years afterwards, redesign uh, humanity in a different kind of uh, shape and form.
2: Yeah, it's not just, it's not just even the World War II era, right? Like, even if you think about the Middle East and like, the interwar era. So like between first and second world war, right? Think about Egypt in particular and the kind of intellectual movements that were very critical of what they call tradition, right? And so they offer their own ideas as to how to build this new modern Egyptian society that will be then worthy of true independence, you know, kick out the British, right? Be like a real original leader, and and all of that. So, so I mean, you know, some of it sounds today like a, a bit cringy, right? Because some of it is um, very much very Darwinist, right? Some of it is is the new um, new feminism. Right. Some of it became very Islamist, but even even like the Muslim Brotherhood originally started as kind of a, a very um, revolutionary movement that saw the transfer, like the transformation that is needed to happen at the very root of society. Therefore, working with like the poorest population, right? Not revolution from above, like Huda Sha'arawi type of thing, right? Or the communists, some of them were, you know, all about kind of the, you know, vanguard, right? But, but like revolution from below. Um, and so after World War II, and actually it's after 1948, Right. In the Arab world, it's after 1948 is is all these intellectual movements that we're thinking, oh, how are we going to be able to rebuild Arab society and Arab consciousness in a way that will help us overcome this humiliation? And that next time we confront, you know, the Zionists, we we confront imperialism, right, we will win. Right, and so there are different movements that came out of it, right, including Nasserism and others. Right, um, I think in the case of Zionism, it's a little bit different, um, because of course, um, what you call the the pioneer, like the pioneers, the making of the new Jew, um, has a lot to do with um, that trend. Has a lot to do with also you know starting a very europeanized colony in palestine that would be worthy right of the respect of the europeans right <laughs> it's kind of a it's kind of a different movement it's kind of a i know that you're thinking oh yes it's about the remaking of the jew but it's actually it's a very different movement right
1: I just want to mention before before moving forward because you mentioned Hamas earlier which is only from 1994 that Hamas eventually became militant and began attacking civilians but effectively earlier was much more concerned about the well-being of uh, of the population it worked almost as a charity organization and uh, and a political movement but that's another story I want to move to your chapter 4 and that reminded me that a few years back, I had dinner with Salim Tamari. Salim Tamari is a sociologist and historian from Palestine, certainly well-known and respected scholar. And I remember him talking about his memories of a city. And then, again, your chapter four is very much about Salim and Rima Hamami. And so I was wondering if you can share with us what discussed in this chapter
2: one of the very first thing that i wanted to do is i wanted to trace the stories of palestinians of jaffa after 1948 so 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 that the story of jaffa doesn't end with start and end with the city but rather the people who used to live there and are no longer there, right? Um, and so, in the book, there are two chapters. Originally, it was one very, very long chapter that had more elements to it, um, and it was really about tracing really different um, different itineraries, right? Um, including revolutionary itineraries, and of course, the, the um, um, you know um, refugees, the camp refugees, right? What happened to Palestinians in the intervening years? Right. So you have people like Rima, who I later met, and and Saleem, who I'm at awe um, of, um, and slightly intimidated, um, and you know were able to really write about their experiences, write about. You know the histories of their families right um and then you know there were people like the camp palestinians that i met that um most people don't don't come to listen to (laughs) right like so when i was sitting in front of like elderly palestinians in camps it's not the first time that they tell the story, but usually they tell the stories to like their community and their family members, but suddenly this woman comes from outside and not just a woman, right? An Israeli Jewish woman, this is the story, right? And like asking them about their lives, right? Um, so it was it was the first time for a lot of them that they were being heard outside of their community in a way that made them very aware that other people are going to read their stories, right? Um, and 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 they were they were um, reflecting on that. They were saying, "You have to tell them. You have to tell them that we're still here. We have to tell. You have to tell them how we live. You have to tell them about how you know how we want to go back. You know what I mean? Like they were very very aware that there is an audience, and it's not just me." Right, that that is it's going to be written in another language. Right, um, it was incredibly powerful um, to be sitting there and and listening to stories, and I listened to way more stories than I ended up, you know, including in the book, um, which really made me. Um, I mean, it really made me think about our responsibility. Right, as a historians, right, and and the ethics of working with refugees and the ethics of working with, you know, displaced people and, you know, what it is that we convey, what it is that we silence, and so on. Right, it was it was a very profound process.
1: And I want to pick up on this, and if you can just talk a little bit more about uh, the return and the memory of local inhabitants, and perhaps you can focus on the question of uh, diasporic silence
2: um it's interesting that you're saying diasporic silence because i actually felt that people were not silent at all um the Palestinians that i met in the diaspora are really really not silent um in the just this past nakba day 2023 i participated in a panel in texas in denton texas um with two um Two refugees, two elderly Palestinians who live in the U.S., one of them from Jaffa. And trust me, they were not silent at all. They had a lot to say, a lot of important things to say, and they were really interested in people listening to them. Right. And they're also interested in, like, speaking to broader audiences. Right. Where I did encounter silences are actually Palestinians who remained in Jaffa and experienced 1948. Um, So I I did some research. Um, I was sitting in this day center. It's like an elderly day center in Jabalia. It's part of of. And they're all Palestinian elderly people, very nice people. Um, And, you know, just just spending the day with them and talking to them. And there was this one guy who was very talkative. um, And but when I came to talk to him about the Nakba, he suddenly he clamped up. He didn't he didn't want to talk. He was like, oh, no, no, it was, you know, it wasn't that bad. No, no, we're happy. We're happy to be with the Israelis. No, no. You know, um, he was he was, you know, it it sort of took me by surprise. And then he said, oh, you know, I wrote a poem. Do you want to hear my poem? So I said, yeah, sure. Read me the poem in Arabic. And the poem was, of course, telling a different story. Right, it was a poem about pain and, and trauma and loss, and it was kind of obvious that um, he was silent in a in a way that he he didn't want to say explicit things. He, I mean, he was also jailed in the '60s, right, for political activism in Israel, right? So he had other ways of expressing what he wanted to tell me, right? So actually, the silences often came from people inside. Not from diasporic Palestinians, not from camp
1: refugees. That's fascinating, and again, you can see the multi-layer uh, sort of structure of um, you know how people remember and tell stories. And I found it uh, very powerful, as you said earlier. I want to move along uh, the book, and you talk about the transformations of Jaffa since the Nakba. And you do it through the work of uh, Gil um, Mualem Doron's work. So perhaps you can tell us a little bit more about uh, who is he and you know a few things about his work. And you use his work to discuss this transformation. Can you also talk a little bit about the question of uh, spatial resistance, which are deeply connected with uh, with this work? So.
2: I met Gil when he was still living in Jaffa, right? He at some point gave up and left. But, um, um, and he, he was always a political activist, right? He was always very embedded in the community. Um, and so he watched with his own eyes how, um, for example, especially Palestinian, like it's working class Palestinians in Jaffa, are being displaced, right? Through like house demolitions, through, um, you know, um, this type of um, gentrification, but like gentrification, um, to, like extreme gentrification, very rapid one, right? Um, he saw how you know buildings in his streets, in his street, were kind of gutted in order to then remake them into fancy condos, which, of course, are not going to be marketed to Palestinians, right? He saw all this, and he became incredibly involved, and that's his style. His style is obviously to use his art um, in the public space in order to... Um, attract attention in order to raise awareness. Um, Sometimes he gets in trouble for it. Like once I I forgot what it was about, he was actually arrested for holding a fake gun. He obviously, I I, I forgot what was the act. Maybe it was about crime, but he was even arrested for it, right? Um, And so what he wanted to to do, is um, kind of create acts of provocation, even right? What he does is he believes that provoking Israelis would actually make them think, right, about displacement. So, for instance, you know, I describe um, Arab homes for sale, which was very clever. He was he had a booth in a in an art fair in which he had little um, models of Arab homes, right? And he kind of presented himself as a salesman, right? He's selling, you know, these... Um, renovated Arab homes for Jews. It's the one thing that Israeli Jews love so much. Arab houses with the high ceilings and the big windows and and all that. And the idea is, of course, to attract attention of, of, of Jews and then if they get interested and they can call this number And but when they call the number, that's when they're going to hear a famous Israeli song, that is a patriotic song, but turned on its head because then it's sung in Arabic, right? Or you know, then if they're interested in purchasing one of the houses, that they realize that all these houses are actually no longer exists because Israel um, expelled the Palestinian residents and demolished the neighborhood, right? So it was very, very clever. <laughs> Right that's 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 his style. And I mean, also, he, um, you know, he he also um, he's he was also working as an arts educator when he worked with Israeli students, right. Um, and he made them, he forced Israeli students to really think about redesigning um, contemporary landscapes and to prepare them for the return, right? Of the Palestinian refugees. So, you know, he's, he's, I think, incredibly brave, right? He continues to do so right in, in the UK. And he's also, again, as a, an engaged artist, he's also very engaged in contemporary anti-racist politics in the UK, right? Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I wanted to um, really devote a chapter to different forms of, of protests against the transformation of the city, you know, and displacement and house demolitions. And of course, Gilmolim Dolon is one artist. There have been others who have been in their way, right? Creating this these um, engaged, um, engage
1: public art. And talking about return in chapter six, you discuss Zokrot and a proclamation of return, which was read in Tel Aviv in 2012. So you're looking at, uh, the Zokrot Badil project, which essentially, uh, essentially is envisioning the return of the refugees. And you look at a series of imagined futures.
2: So, um, in 2012, that was, I believe, um, really the beginning of the transformation of Sukhot. So, up until that point, from 2002 until 2011-2012, Sukhot mostly focused on commemorating the Nakba. Right? Sort of taking Israelis to sites of depopulated villages and telling the stories, right? And showing them, which is, which is very important in work, and they keep doing that. but they also went through a transformation of advocating for the return of the refugees. So talking about justice, right? Not just about commemoration. And so this project was very, 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 very experimental because when we started, we didn't know where we're gonna end, right? And also there were like a lot of internal tensions within the group. Right, uh, around questions like, you know, what is it going to look like once you're actually um, kind of forced to leave abstractions behind and look at the space, and sort of think about how it's going to be used, who's going to live there, right? How it's going to function? You know, this is where you, you, you know, it gets dicey, right? This is where people who are otherwise very committed to the right of return will, will say, well, you know, I don't know, right? Like, is that gonna work? How is that gonna work? What does that mean for the people who currently live there and so on, right? So this, this, this project was, it was good to sort of go through this process, right? It wasn't perfect by any means, right? Um, I think if you read the, kind of the textual products you you and you'll see some of these tensions but i think it also launched similar projects i think it also launched public conversations around the possibility of return um I'm in the israeli public palestinians always talked about return so it's it's it really making israelis Talk about the right of return, and not just about the Nakba, because I think it's the realization that there are Israeli Jews, like even on the like the kind of the the Zionist left, so the so-called Zionist left, who have no problem commemorating the Nakba. They just don't want to think about justice, right? They don't want to redress, you know, the injustice of of ethnic cleansing. So this is why I think Zohot sort of made this pivot. And I'm so lucky to be invited into this project that absolutely transformed my project. Um, My dissertation and then the book would not have taken this turn at all because I then continued the discussion of um, sort of visions of return in chapter seven, right? Because I know, I I don't just talk about what we did, what we wrote as a group, but I also look at um, what others through literature, right? What others are thinking about the return, right? So I talk about two short stories. One is kind of like, more like I read it and I was like, it's a little bit kumbaya, right? Um the you know, the the, the Gaudi story written by an Israeli was a bit more kumbaya than the Palestinian written story, which was a bit like poignant and like, you know, but do we trust them? But is there anywhere for us to return? But can we live with them? And so on, right? Which also came up with like came up in, in my conversations with refugees in the camp. That said, said to me, I, I, I don't want to live with the people who killed my best friend, right, or who besieged the camp, or, you know, um, that it's not all kumbaya, that it's not all about sort of like, okay, thinking about post-conflict transformation and reconciliation, right, these are words that are thrown around a lot, but I actually point to doubt, a lot of it.
1: And you said something that all right, was buzzing in my head. I mean, uh, particularly when we think about uh, the left, whatever is the left, uh, in Israel, you know, commemoration, in a sense, it's easier. Uh, it's a good step forward, you know, seeing the amount of denial, but thinking about the return, thinking about reparation, uh, that's a completely different discourse. And I think... I must say that in your in your book, really, this comes out very powerful, and very powerfully, and and I think it's it's very important to remember the difference here. Like commemoration is one thing, but the reality of the return is a different one
2: no but th- the point is and i guess that's sort of the kind of the, the, in the very end right i went through a process with this book right so in the very end when you reach the end of the book what i'm saying is but we need to sort of think about these complications and that's okay that's okay if if the road is bumpy but but this is the politics of hope right the idea that fine, it's, it's not going to be, you know, like we can't even imagine the post-liberation future is like this all, you know, milk and cookies and bunnies and, you know, but I mean, you know, but we need to think about it and we need to think about ways that we can redress injustice, but also at the same time, like I, like I said to, um, a friend this morning, but we all gotta in the end in the end we all gonna yeah, we, we all gonna have to live together, right? Like we don't want anybody else to be ethnically cleansed. Right? How do we not uh, get to the point of another you know ethnic cleansing to anyone?
1: Now moving forward, uh, central to your last chapters are South Africa in a trip to Cape Town. Can you tell us a little bit more about the trip and the connection with Palestine and Jaffa?
2: So this is part of the, the, the Zahrot Badil um, project um, that I was invited into. And um, so they, they were thinking about, um, thinking about taking activists on a trip to a place that were you know something similar may have transpired they didn't quite know where right they were thinking about post conflict situations but this is not post conflict they ended up in south africa because of apartheid right um, and and because of colonialism um, and so we ended up traveling um, together as a group, right? Israelis and Palestinians. Obviously, um, very important to say, and I say, I mean, and, 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 and I note that in the chapter, I'm saying, well, we couldn't travel together, couldn't we? Even though we came from the same country because of the imposition of, you know, um, you know, curbing mobility for Palestinians. Palestin- the Our Palestinian friends couldn't travel with us. Right, they had to go through Jordan, which is already kind of a reminder, right, of of the uh, of of the reality of apartheid, right. Um, and we came to Cape Town, and we heard from um, people on the ground about the curbing of mobility. During the apartheid era, which is something that resonated very, very well with this group, especially of course with Palestinians, right? Um, we were taken to sort of key sites that, again, it was designed to sort of elicit these comparisons. So Robben Island, in the sense of you know political prisoners, right? Um, District District Six, which is all about. know the destruction right and depopulation and ethnic cleansing right of people and specifically about district six there is also kind of a symbolic process of return and and um and reparations so um portion of the people who were ethnically cleansed from District 6, which is a neighborhood in Cape Town, um, that were um, expelled in 1966 um, over the last few years have received new homes in the vicinity of the original site. Right. And um, so we went to visit them as well. And it, of course, made us think about the logistics, right, of return. Um, um, So, you know, and we visited a refugee camp. Outside of Cape Town, um, which, of course, made Palestinian, the Palestinian members of the group um, directly um, compare the experience of the refugees in Mandela Park to their own. And I remember they're saying, oh, wow, they're worse off than us, which I was like taken aback. Right. I don't live as a refugee, so I can't even. I don't know. Right. I, you know, I don't know. Um, So um, that whole visit, it's a couple of weeks this whole visit was supposed to make us think about what is comparable as in the things that are similar between the experience of apartheid in South Africa and in Palestine, but also, um, it also turned into what not to do, right? Because the more we talk to people, the more we realize that they went about it the wrong way in the aftermath of apartheid in a way that did not offer solution or justice, right, to, I think, to most people, right? And so when we were sitting in those meeting rooms and the very end of the trip, we were talking about, about what it is that we don't want to do, what it is that we don't want to happen, right, in Palestine it was also a very visceral kind of experience um where Palestinians sort of um our Palestinian um friends were really kind of empowered to talk about their own experiences of loss i think it was i think it was a very good um I think it was very good for obviously for them to like really air it, to really be able to powerfully articulate it. And for the
1: Israelis to hear all that. I have one last question. Sure. So in the conclusion, you have a series of pictures and you have chosen one that I found personally very powerful. And that's the sign marking the Israel Lebanese border and uh, you can only see the directions for the various cities. And it feels as the cities of Jerusalem and Beirut are not really that far away, and certainly they're not, and they were not particularly under the Ottomans. In an imagined future, that border could be one day open and possibly it will be even you know a great night out driving from Haifa to Beirut for a dinner out on the Corniche. Now, I know I'm digressing here, but I wanted to use this image to have you talking about uh, the conclusion of your book.
2: You know, that point where we were standing near that sign um, is at top of a hill. But actually, under our feet, so the bottom of the hill, was the tunnel through which the train that went to Beirut um, once went through. Right, and in 1948, um, they, they you know they tore out the rail, right? and and, um, and um, completely sealed off that tunnel. And standing up there, of course, it made us all think, right, about open borders because you st- when you're standing there, what you don't see in the picture is the big gate right you're standing there and it's actually a military base it's right by a military base and there's a big you know locked gate right so i you know it's it's quite powerful to think about this place without the ba- base without the gate and potentially with um a much more uh, rapid train going not just from Haifa from from jaffa right, um, to Beirut, because of course in Ottoman times, and I mean also after Ottoman times, right, people were connected in in, in, in also, you know, in terms of like family. I mean, what do you mean? People married along, um, across borders all the time. These borders are artificial borders, right? people married, people went to school. I mean, in 1948, there were people in Jaffa who ended up being stuck in Beirut because they were in school, right? And they couldn't come back home, right? I mean, there are Jews that became later Israeli Jews that went to school in Beirut, right? Um, Actually, in the dissertation, in the chapter that I omitted from the book, because I'm going to use it in a different way, um, there is this guy who ended up being an Israeli intelligence official who went to to AUB. Right, I mean, sure, and this should be, this thought that it's possible should be normalized, right? Sure. Right? Um, We were thinking a lot about, you know, living in Amman, working in Jerusalem. People who live in North America, what do you mean? We commute all the time. I'm just kind of hoping that uh, um, in like the post-liberation Palestine, we're not going to be like the U.S. depending on cars, but we'll have those rapid trains, right? That will connect us to places.
1: And on this positive note, this was uh, Noah Scheidingler, author of Displacement and Erasure in Palestine, published by Edinburgh University Press in 2023. Ah, Thank you so much.
2: You're welcome. It was uh, wonderful to chat with you.